Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 8th, 2015. This is episode 1656 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's a Thursday, it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You make that phone call, and uh, you might hear yourself a week from now on the air. Um, and I'll tell you what, today is a unique show, and I'm going to do this again next week, and then we're going to go back to like general calls, because by then I'll have a huge slew of general calls to, uh, to call in for. Today's show is all about guns, all about firearms, um, rifles, pistols, handguns, training, Cleaning, maintenance, you name it. It's all in today's show. You guys did a great job with the questions. I think 14 or 15 queued up. And a bunch of you guys sent them in by email. Um, I may actually clean up those on Monday next week and do those like quick answer on Monday. But when I ask for sh uh, stuff for a call-in show, if you want to get on, call it in. Don't write it in. Because there were some excellent um, sent-in uh, questions by, by text as well. But really call in your questions. So next week I want to do a show on food storage. I want all your questions on food storage and prep for food storage, um, how to rotate, whatever. Anything you want, how to make certain things, whatever you want that relates to storing food, uh, you know, in absence of refrigeration, or even with refrigeration and refrigerators, uh, whether it's uh, vacuum sealing, flash freezing, blanching, you name it. If it's about storing food so that we can use it later, call those questions into the Think Line this week for 866-65-THINK is the number. Ask your question in the media. As soon as you get on the phone, hi, Jack, this is so-and-so. My question is da-da-da-da-da-da. Then give me your details. Trust me, it goes better that way. Also, always call in from a, a clear uh, phone connection with if you have a cell phone. There was a question this week in regards to training versus gun purchasing. Uh, I got the gist of it, but I couldn't use the call. It's from area code 239. That's what happened to you. You were like that. Uh, caller from 239, if you want to remake that call, I'll answer it in the next general session of call-in shows, which will be the one after uh, next Thursday. So anyway, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. 
uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year being uh, 1656, because the episode is 1656. I have two for you from Alex Shrug today. I have one, the first Jewish doctor of Maryland, and I have a study in the diseases of minors and minors, as in ERS and ORS, people that go in a hole in the ground and little children. Uh, that's the one I'm going to read for you today. Samuel Stockhausen publishes one of the earliest formal studies of the occupational diseases this year. In this case, he has studied, he has studied the diseases of minors. He has found out that lead poisoning in minors is due to breathing lead fumes. Lead poisoning has been known for centuries, but it's not easy to pin down all the symptoms. For example, no one has noticed yet the lead poisoning also contains anemia. Last year, severe abdominal pain called Devon's colic developed after drinking Devon's apple cider. Currently, everyone thinks it's due to something unique about Devon's apples. It will be years before they realize that the barrels in which cider is being cleaned out of is using lead shot. The lead residue in the barrels is causing lead poisoning. My take by Alex Shrugged. I've been told that the Roman Empire fell because of lead poisoning due to lead pipes the Romans used for plumbing. I find that hard to believe, but the word plumbing is related to the Latin word for lead, plumbum. Uh, lead in the diet of children tends to thwart the proper growth of the nervous system and thus the development of the brain. That is why lead-based paints are no longer recommended for use in nurseries. Little children used to put flecks of chipped paint in their mouth. It didn't take much lead exposure to mess with their proper development. One should also avoid lead-based paint when decorating one's dinner dishes or lead-based glaze for pottery. Um, I think lead is like overly feared today in some ways, but I also think there's things that you really shouldn't do with it, like paint. I want you to think about this. So it, it, long before 1656, we knew like lead in the body was bad. 
1656, uh, Samuel Stockhausen does this study. He figures out, hey, these miners going down into the ground here, no matter what they're mining, if there's lead present when they when they blast, or they, they weren't blasting because they didn't have dynamite, but when they're busting rocks and stuff and it kicks up dust, if they're inhaling lead, this is like making them sick. So we know this isn't good for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then we say, you know what, let's do this. Let's, let's put this stuff in our paint. Let's put this stuff in our paint. And you just know, you just know long before lead paint was banned for painting homes and stuff like that, there were people going, yeah, you know, we shouldn't do that. Well, we make bullets out of this stuff and, you know, other things. That, okay, yeah, but this stuff's not good for people. And if you put it in their paint, it could get in their bodies. And, and, and you can imagine the powers that be saying, oh, you're crazy. No, that's not the case. You're a tin hatter. Of course, they didn't have tin hatters back then. I don't know what you were, but you're, you're, you're the equivalent at the time of a conspiracy nut job. And we continue to put this stuff, and you got kids, right? Anybody that has kids has seen them run around and bite stuff, right? On the wall and stair banisters and stuff. And we did that. So when I point out things that, you know, some of us realize that we're doing today that are dangerous or bad for ourselves or our children, and you think, no, that can't be. Everybody says it's okay. Just realize that we use lead paint and lead-based gasoline for an awful long time after everybody knew how bad lead was with the concept of, well, you don't drink gasoline, so it's not a problem. You don't eat paint. Well, kids do, but they don't eat that much of it. It's not really a problem. With no thought of, like, okay, well, when this item's disposed of and it's, like, rotting into the soil and now we're going to grow something there 10 years later, no one knows that happened. I mean, there's all types of places now where plots of land need major uh, rehabilitation before you can safely grow food in them because of lead based things that were popular in residential and suburban areas for the last few hundred years. So maybe the next time somebody tells you something like the, the current method of education is hurting our children or these drugs are not really treating our diseases and illness or we give too many vaccines or I don't know that it's bad to be consuming atrazine and glyphosate in your food and genetically modifying food so it can be sprayed with those things is a bad idea. Before you write it off, before you write it off, think about this little history segment, My Take by Jack Spierko. Uh, next up, before we get into your questions, let's go ahead and take care of reminding you about the Members Support Brigade. If you want to help support the show and the work that I do, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, see all the great companies that give you discounts, see all the other great things you get. Consider signing up at $50 a year. That's 18.3 cents an episode. You want to give it a shot, you're not sure it's for you, join for five bucks a month. If you don't like it, cancel after your first month and don't worry about it. Or, Cancel and then sign back up for a full year. I think you'll find it's worth it. I got an email from a guy uh, last week who built a major battery bank system uh, for his off-grid home uh, using Iron Edison batteries, which, I mean, if you want the gold standard for a battery bank for, for off-grid, uh, that's where to go. He saved $838 on batteries with his MSB discounts from Iron Edison batteries, which already has some of the very best iron nickel iron batteries you can get at some of the best pricing you can already get. Saved an additional 800 bucks, so he's good for like 16 years. Uh, that's the kind of value in the MSB, from little stuff like a few packets of seeds to some cool stuff like soaps and olive oils, tactical stuff, you name it. I've got discounts in there for you, and I am working on some more stuff for you right now. Uh, with that, 
Um, let's go ahead and take your first call. Remember, if you want to make a call like this, ask your question or make your point immediately. Write it down. It will help. You know, one or two sentences and then give me your details and your thoughts behind it. It will be more likely to get on the air. I'm just trying to help. I'm not being a nitpicking asshole like some people think. This, I, I, I trust me, I've had some of you guys call and it's like four calls in a row of you getting like halfway through the call and hanging up. And then you finally call back and say, my question is, and they go straight. Trust me. Again, look for the bars. Remember, all of today's calls are on firearms. Your questions for next week, please call them in. Please call them in. Don't write them in for food storage. And let's go ahead with that first call. Hey, Jack. Uh, it's Matt from VA calling here with a uh, quick firearms maintenance question. Uh, after a day at the range, what is the minimum cleaning I should do? And uh, if things get busy at home after that, how long can that wait? And uh, how often should I do a real deep clean? That's it. Uh, looking forward to hearing from you. And uh, thanks for the show. Take care. Bye-bye. Let me say I'm going to uh, go fast with some of these because I just looked and it's actually 17 questions today. So I need to go really fast with some of them, especially easy ones like this. The next thing I'm going to say is every answer I give today, I'm going to have a lot of people disagreeing with me. But also understand I answer these questions from two perspectives. One is a former soldier who takes a weapon apart and cleans every part meticulously in the instance of this one. And two, from a practical standpoint of the way the caller asked the question. So... With this one, I actually have three. The absolute minimum, the minimum I consider minimum, and then, yeah, you should clean the weapon, you know, stem to stern, so to speak, uh, every time it's used, uh, period. So the absolute minimum, I mean, the absolute, I have, I don't have time for jack crap. I, I squeezed in some range time, took a rifle and a handgun out and fired them, and now I'm, I'm home with them, and I have like five minutes um, a good wipe down, a good wipe down, put them away. Make sure all metal exposed surfaces have been wiped down with gun oil or whatever you use for doing that. That's the absolute bare bones minimum because you've touched them. You've gotten sweat, you've gotten salt on them and yes, they can and will rust. And that takes so little time. There's no excuse ever, ever, ever for ever touching a firearm and not giving it a wipe down. Uh, if you have polymer frames and stuff, there's probably still some exposed metal. Any exposed metal, give it a wipe down. If you have Parkerized stuff, um, you know, your wipe down is not as critical, but it should still be done. Okay? So there's your absolute bare bones minimum. Um, the minimum maintenance I consider is running a brush uh, if it's been fired a lot. If it's only been fired a few times, running a, a oiled patch through the barrel, uh, several of those running a dry patch, and then running another lightly oiled patch through the bore, cleaning uh, and, and a wipe down. Uh, my, my bare bones minimum, you should also, when I say all exposed metal, like whatever you can reach inside the chamber and, you know, if you have a magazine well, not just the outside, but the inside goes down with that wipe down. Um, doing a little bit more diligence with some, you know, either cleaning solvent or something like that inside uh, your your receiver, your magazine well, etc. cetera. Um, that's my minimum. Right, that's my minimum because I get the gook out of the bore. I make sure there's there's uh, there's oil in contact with metal in the bore. It's going to be okay. I want to fully strip and clean the weapon to whatever level that gun I I tend to break down and clean it at. Um, but I'm I'm not going to sweat it if I did that. Um, I'm going to put it kind of on the schedule now. Like those guns went to the range. 
They're not going to get put in the back of the gun cabinet or the back of the gun safe. They're going to be in the front. There's going to be a note, maybe a reminder on my phone, like this weekend, fully clean these, these weapons, if they were fired a lot. If they were fired a few times, I'm actually fine with what I just said. I know people are freaking out, but you know what? This isn't the Army, right? Now, is that, is that your main rifle that you're going to rely on or your main carry handgun that you're going to rely on? Then it needs to be fully cleaned after it's fired. You, you don't have room or, or, or chance for any kind of mishap or misfire or whatever. But if it's a gun that you just shoot and use as a hobby gun or something, that's enough. How often should you fully clean your gun? How often do you use it? How often do you use it? I say a heavy range session, so more than a couple boxes of, of ammo, uh, depending on what you're shooting, full cleaning. A light range session, what I just said. Several light range sessions, full cleaning. Again, if it's a gun you're going to hunt with, full cleaning before you go hunting. If it's a gun you're going to take to a training, full cleaning before you take it there. If you're at a multi-day training where you're doing a lot of shooting every day, full cleaning at the end of the day. Otherwise, your gun's not going to break. It's not going to fall apart. It's not going to rust to the ground because you didn't clean it. To be perfectly honest, there are times when I come home and all I do is wipe off the outside of the gun and set it aside and I get busy and it sits there for four months and when I clean it, it's disgusting, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's highly likely to malfunction, especially if it's a semi-auto, but nothing breaks in it. All that powder residue and stuff like that in modern ammunition doesn't really hurt stuff. It just can gum stuff up. Now, If you're shooting corrosive ammo and older weapons, everything I said is out the window and I don't have time to talk about corrosive ammo and the cleaning routine or black powder and the cleaning routine for that today. Let's go on and take another one. Yeah, Jack, uh, this is Bob from Florida. The, uh, answering your, your call for uh, gun questions for the call-in show. Uh, I've got a question on how you feel about the use of either lever-action or pump-action centerfire rifles as sort of a uh, under-the-table way of having a rapid-fire weapon as opposed to a quote-unquote assault rifle semi-automatic style. Uh, I know you said growing up uh, your family had a pump-action 30-06, and while growing up in the 70s, the uh, Winchester 30-30 lever was a very popular gear rifle in where I grew up in the Catskill Mountains of New York. So I'd just like to hear your opinion. Uh, love what you do. Thanks. Um, I love pump guns. I, I love pump shotguns. I love pump rifles. Tactically, I, I don't see them as a um, it is the best thing. They're, they're a good second best. Um, same with levers. Here's the deal. I can keep up with anybody who I could keep up with if I had a semi-automatic with a pump gun. In every shooting Um, stance other than prone if you're on the ground you cannot keep up with the rate of fire as, as a semi-auto so in a tactical situation most of the time you know unless you're part of a team and you're doing you're covering each other's back or whatever prone is a pretty likely place to end up and you cannot keep up with um, a semi-auto in a prone position you can't if you just get down on the ground with a pump gun you'll see why Uh, now, other people will say, also, if you have to fire one-handed, okay, this isn't the movies, that's valid, but, you know, come on. Um, it's more true with a lever gun. I am almost as fast with a lever as I am with a pump. Almost. There is a slight advantage in speed. Specifically, 
accurately shooting. There's no doubt that anybody can outshoot probably just about anybody else unless one's a superstar with a semi-auto over a pump. Accurately, it's especially with moving targets. We're not talking about sitting down at the bench with a sandbag, doom, 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 doom. We're talking about up moving, uh, whether it's, it's shooting a tactical situation or knocking birds out of the air. I will keep up to your semi-auto with my pump when it comes to accuracy. I absolutely will. Lever, almost. Almost, right? In the prone position, it's an even bigger weakness. The weapon must be turned sideways to actuate the lever, and it's very probable that the shooter, whether or not they want to, is going to come up a little bit when they go to do that, more so than a pump. In fact, this was when the U.S. decided, yeah, we need to get into the bolt-action business for military arms. When Teddy Roosevelt took his Rough Riders into Cuba, uh, and the Seven Mauser was a new thing, uh, and the, uh, the, resist- the, the, uh, the, 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 the Cubans, basically, I guess is the best word for it, it's really the Spanish, were using a Seven Mauser in a bolt-action. Uh, our guys got tore up for that very reason. Now, we were charging uphill and you know there's a lot of things but that wasn't the only thing that happened there it made an impression and the US military began running headlong away from from lever action uh, rifles to bolt action and there's no doubt that the lever action has a higher rate of fire than a bolt action but in that common position of being down on the ground or being in a trench or being in a position where you're taking the rifle and resting it from underneath That bolt action allows you to not move your body at all, where the pump requires you to move it a little bit, but the lever requires you to turn that rifle to the side to be able to actuate that lever. So tactically, those are the weaknesses. Otherwise, there is an advantage to semi-auto. There's a higher rate of fire. There's an absorbed perceived recoil. It lets better follow up on the target. But I've never felt that I was under gun with a pump gun. When you shoot a pump gun specifically, and you start shooting a rifle and a shotgun and a pump gun, for especially like hunting, it becomes second nature. As the gun's recoiling, you're coming back with the, the slide and back forward as you're re-engaging the target or taking on the next target. And it's it's so smooth if it's a well-made weapon. It's, it's unbelievable. The gun you talked about was a 760 Remington. Um, that and all the variants of it thereof after are just exceptional weapons. They do make 10-round magazines for them, though are a little bit harder to find uh, than the five-round standard magazines that come with them. Um, to me, the pump has advantages over the lever gun. Very few lever guns have a magazine action. Savage made some, Brownie made some, but like the pumps generally just do uh, with anything centerfire. So I think there's a, an advantage to having that external magazine capability. Um, Compared to you know shoving rounds in one at a time, though there's there can be advantages there too. Tactically, tactically you're better off with a semi-auto purpose-built weapon. I, I look at guns like I look at livestock. If it's if it's if it excels at one thing, okay, it doesn't excel at the other. And if it's made to do both, it probably doesn't excel at either. Um, just saying for. Another option, though, if you wanted to go semi-auto but not be in the assault rifle uh, world, um, the Remington 740, 7400, 74, all those variations of that are basically the seven, the 7.6 series, all the 7.4, 7.6 series. It's basically the same gun in a semi-auto configuration. They're outstanding. They're just one of the most outstanding sporting arms ever made. 
um, and they do have a perceived reduction recoil. And the Browning bar uh, is is the I would call that like the Remington is like the Chevy, and the Browning is still a Chevy, but it's like the specialty Corvette. It, it really is a very very nice gun. So that's my answer on that. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is Matt from Illinois. I have a firearms question for you. I have a 1953 Mauser that I just picked up at an auction. It's an exceptional shape, but I know nothing about it. Is it a good firearm for um, high-powered deer hunting? When my wife and I plan to move out of Illinois, we intend to do some high-powered deer hunting. And just like to know if that would work or do I need to upgrade to something else. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Okay, so I, I don't have all the information to really speak intelligently on your individual weapon, but generally I can tell you, yes, you can kill all the deer you want with it. With appropriate ammo, you don't want to use surplus full metal jacket ammo on a deer. You want an expanding sporting equivalent round. The most likely thing you have is an 8mm Mauser, which is, for all intents and purposes, almost a ballistic twin to the thirty oh six. Uh, that round could shoot anything and kill anything on the North American continent, certainly uh, the white-tailed deer. Contrary to what ballistic advertising and magazines has led you to believe, deer have not become steroid-infused, roid-using super creatures that need more killing than they did back when our grandparents were knocking them over with 30-30s left and right. Um, the one thing you need to realize about military Mausers, anything from the 6.5 Swedish all the way up to the 8mm, they were all developed during the age where cavalry still meant horses, at least at times, and every one of them, to be considered a valid military round, had to put a round through a full-size horse and be capable of killing the horse from underneath its rider. That was actually one of, the, not the ballistic requirement, but one of the ballistic requirements for any round accepted by any of the nations that used the Mauser or the equivalents that the United States used, like the Craig rifles and the Enfields, both the ones we uh, developed with the British and the ones we kept here at home that fired the 306 round. Uh, and then eventually even the Springfield, that was a consideration, but it was a known because it had already been used in a prior uh, platform being the 1917 U.S. Enfield. So any Mauser, unless it's some kind of trainer with 22 in it, is going to be sufficient for killing a deer. If you can kill a horse, you can kill a freaking deer. And it's going to likely have, unless there's some really old stuff, it's going to have a modern uh, ammo availability where you can go out and buy an expanding round that's made for deer hunting. Some people might be like, what's this guy calling about high-powered deer hunting? That's a, it's, a, it's a weird phrase. And I admit when I first heard it, it caught me too. But I know what he's actually saying. He lives in, in, a, in a place where he has to hunt with shotguns for deer. There's, there's no uh, centerfire rifle, so that that's what he means there. It sounds a little funky, but centerfire deer hunting, think about it that way. A centerfire rifle for deer hunting, because he, where he lives now, he's not ever been able to do that before, so that's what he means there. Now, here's the but. The but is you have a beautiful piece of military history in your hands, and so many of them have been bubbaized and sporterized, and so many of them have been damaged, and very few of them compared to how many were made, exist in pristine condition today. There is nothing wrong from a standpoint of performance taking that gun hunting with you. Do not, do not, do not, do not cut, um, do not ream, do not rechamber, do not do anything to permanently alter that gun, please. 
It is a collectible. It is a true collectible. You should see it as such. And the only bad thing about taking it hunting is that you could damage it and reduce its valuable as a collectible. I'm more comfortable shooting that thing on a range than carrying it through the deer woods. The next thing, you're probably going to find that it's long. I mean, if it's a carbine version, shorter barrel version, it's probably longer and heavier than you would like. And since you finally have the ability to carry a rifle into the deer woods, you might like to be able to shoot further than you could with that shotgun. That might mean that you want to put optics on it, and it's not ideal for that. Now, there are forward mounting optics that will go right on most stock Mausers. You remove the rear sight, the mount affixes to the rear sight, you put a long eye relief scope, scout rifle style, onto that. And if you ever want to reconfigure it, you can take it back off and put the sight back on it, fine. You're going to mar up the finish a little bit, but you're not going to permanently alter it, you won't destroy its collectible value. Okay? So if you're going to do it at all, I would do it that way. But when you can go to most places and pick up a used Savage Model 10 308 uh, for a couple hundred bucks, $200, $250, throw a $75 good, like, you know, middle grade, like Bushnell Redfield scope on it, $20, $30 bucks in it to, for the mounts, in that, that gun for under $300. Bucks. And don't be married to 308. That's just a very common thing you'll find. You'll find long actions in 306, 243, whatever. Um, but you can be into that gun for 300 ish dollars. And it is purpose made for hunting. And if you scratch the crap out of it, if you drop it, if it, it if it falls out of your hands, if anything goes wrong with it, uh, you pick it up, you, you maybe have to replace the scope or you have to re-zero the scope if you knocked it out and kind of wampus. But you don't really care. It's a few hundred dollars. You can buy another one any day. And 10 years from now, you'll be able to buy another one any day versus taking this piece of military history and damaging it. You might want to go there not to upgrade, but actually from a standpoint of value to downgrade and not be damaging something that has so much history and value to it. My gut is it's a Yugoslavian uh, made by uh, Germany based on the year that you just told me, repurposed, refitted at one of the arsenals under the Soviet bloc. There's a lot of those coming on the market right now. They're not worth what the original German Mausers kept in Germany are worth when they're in pristine condition. Uh, a lot of people don't value them as much as they should right now. Don't make that mistake. I remember when Swedish Mausers, packed in Cosmoline, were three for $110. Go price one a day. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Dan. I had a question about red dot sites for shotguns. seems to me that the only option that will hold up to, say, 500, 1,000 rounds is an aim point or equivalent. Is there a cost-effective red dot sight for a shotgun? Thanks. I'll come straight out front and tell you this is not my area of expertise. Um, when it comes to shotguns, if I'm going tactical, I'm going with, with ghost ring uh, on the back, front bead or front uh, blade uh, iron sights. I'm not even thinking about a scope on a tactical shotgun. Um, if I'm looking at sporting... I'm not going to be putting thousands of rounds through it, so I don't really care. And I'm only going to be putting a red dot on a shotgun if I'm hunting deer, and then I'm probably going to go with a low-power, uh, wide field of view scope, something in like a 1.5 to 5.5 uh, optic if I'm going to be hunting with a shotgun with slugs or something like that. So this is just not, not my circus, not my monkeys type of thing. However, my gut in knowing what I do about red dots in general and looking for something that's not going to break the bank uh, was going to was going to be a suggestion that you consider the Bushnell 
TRS-25. And I started doing some research on that scope, and were there any comparisons, and I found a website called The Bang Switch. Never heard of them before. And they did a budget red dot comparison uh, two-part series where they evaluated the following. AIM Sports Red Dot, Bushnell TRS-25, the Lucid HD7 Gen 3, the Lucid M7, Primary Arms MD06L, Sightmark Ultra Pro, uh, True Glow Red Dot, Vortex Spark, and Vortex Stri Strike Fire Red Green. These range in a street price from uh, down at $35 bucks to the upper end being at like $190. The MSRP on the Bushnell I'm recommending is like $147, bucks, but it's street, actual price you pay for it, around $90. Bucks. So they did, and I'll just put links in the show notes to both of these, and you can look at them and read them yourself, but a pretty in-depth um, comparison. And they rated them on, now, no, they didn't fire them, you know, 5,000 rounds to see if they all held true or still held up, but they had uh, quite a few different people give their own scores on each of them. In fact, it was, uh, let's see here, two, three, four, okay, um, it's uh, the, the top score... Uh, for them, after all their shooters ranged, uh, used them and, and scored them, was a 75. That was like, if you got everything perfect, you would have 75. The highest scoring uh, scope turned out to be the Bushnell TRS-25. And it scored 72.5. Uh, at 90 bucks, and, and these guys, I, I can just tell by reading their um, their review, these guys aren't clowns. Uh, these guys have some experience. They know what they're doing. They did a good job. And they got uh, enough people involved that there was a true kind of democratic feel. This wasn't one guy's preference. The closest thing to that was the Primary Arms MD-06L, uh, and it scored 70. So those two would be where I would kind of start at if I were you, and I would read this article and get a good feel for that. If anybody out there has a red dot on a shotgun that doesn't require you to mortgage at least your car, if not your house, to buy it, uh, you've put thousands of rounds through your gun on it, and it still works and functions and does everything it's supposed to do, um, let us know in the comments for today's show. But, again, this is one of those not-my-circus, not-my-monkey things, so I, that's the best I can do for you. Hey, Jack. Everything I know about guns, I've learned from you. Um, if you were a kid from the suburbs, no gun experience, where would you start? Well, let's start out with if everything you know about guns you learned from me, then you need a lot more experience and a lot more help because um, there's a whole lot that can't be learned without getting your getting your hands on the weapon and, and, and actually using it um, and having some practical experience. I, I answer a lot of questions in business like how do I this or how do I that? It's the same thing with guns except business can hurt you but not kill you, but guns can kill you so you got to be careful. And, and put safety in there primarily. But the best way to learn to hit a baseball is to grab a bat and get up to the plate and start taking some pitches. So I, I think that applies to a lot of things in life. That quote's really not about baseball. I actually used it for someone today who's probably mad at me because it wasn't the answer they were looking for, but it's the truth. Um, so you need to get out and you need to get some experience. So let's talk about some things that I think are of, of primary importance. The first thing I would say is find an instructor that teaches a good, basic gun safety class. Go take that. Go take that and start practicing safety. I'm, I actually mean practicing safety. I mean, you know, get a an airsoft gun 
uh, and uh, a handgun and and practice, you know, loading, unloading, etc. While you got people around and you know, thinking about things like not muzzling somebody. And if you don't know what that means, when you take your safety class, they'll tell you. But I think you can kind of intuitively figure it out. So start out with a safety class and just pay for that. And I'm going to tell you to pay for a lot of things, but I'll tell you how to actually spend a lot less money than most people do when they start saying, I need to learn about guns, because people spend all the money on guns. So take a safety class. That means now you can go somewhere else with people that want to shoot with you, with an instructor, or you can go to a range and rent a gun or whatever, and, and, and not do something stupid, because you've got the safety ingrained in you. And don't assume that you know how to be safe with a weapon. Many people like me, we, we don't even realize the level of safety training we have because we grew up with a father that would smack us in the head if we did anything approaching stupid and grandfathers that would do the same. And then we spent time in the military where you have everything reinforced. Uh, you go to hunter safety courses. You hunt with other hunters. If you do anything stupid, they're quick to tell you. You have a rule when you hunt with people. If either of us do something stupid, the other one immediately is going to say something about it and they're going to take the correction. If you hunt with people that don't agree with you with that, don't hunt with them. Don't go to the range with them. Don't shoot with them. If you are ever in a situation with people with firearms where they do anything approaching stupid, I mean approach, not stupid, but approaching stupid, and you give them correction and they don't want to hear it, do not spend time with those people anymore. See, the safety thing first. Then I think here's the big problem with people who say they want to learn about guns. They go down the training route. What training? I think the first thing you should try to do with training is not become a tactical expert or a handgun expert or even really, really proficient at one of those, or a shotgun expert, or a long-range shooter, or any of those things. I think you should actually get experience with the different options that are available to you. Because I know a lot of people that are really good with a handgun, but they couldn't kill a bird with a shotgun to save their life, and someday they might have to. So I would say go take a basic handgun course. If you live near Frank Sharp or something like that, or James Jager's a great trainer, you want to take a more advanced multi-day handgun course, fine. But go take a basic tactical one-day course from a local guy who's trying to get started, that knows what he's doing, that's got some basic training and certification, and learn the basics of you know tactical handgun usage. How to draw, how to reload, how to clear a malfunction, things like that. And then instead of saying, okay, I'm going to take that to the next level, Go out and find a place where they do skeet shooting and sporting clays. And set a time with a coach to go out and shoot clays one day and skeet the next. They're different. You'll have two different experiences. Don't go buy a shotgun so you can learn to do shotgun. You can rent one when you go spend time with your coach. Then function stack that. When you go shoot clays, you know, rent something like an over and under. When you go shoot skeet, rent something like a semi-auto or a pump. And ask your, tell your instructor, you will probably find at the local place where you can do this, they have both. And they have teachers that do both. And tell them you want to do that. You want to get experience with both platforms. And he might say, I'll tell you what. We'll just, we'll just, I'll shoot one, you shoot the other, and we'll swap, you know, during both of them so you can get experience with both of them with both. Now you start to get a feel for like sporting shotguns. And you might find you love sporting clays because it's like golf with a shotgun. I actually find skeet kind of boring. Um, but I love sporting clays. So you get some of that in. And then maybe take you know, a basic rifle course. And what you'll find is there's not a lot of rifle courses that are really geared toward hunting. So you might have to start doing some of your own training once you have that tactical rifle course in. But I would say get a breadth of knowledge, right? Focus more on kind of getting a full understanding of what all these tools do. Because what I think most people do with their, with their gun training is, okay, I'm going to buy a Glock 19, I'm going to be I'm going to take handgun course after handgun course after handgun course, then I'm going to trade on my own. 
It's like a carpenter that really can use a hammer and a saw really well, but has no idea what a level is, right? Doesn't know how to use uh, a planer or a framing square. Because guns are that diverse. You know, shooting quail with a 28 gauge over dogs is different than shooting ducks coming in on decoys, and shooting ducks coming in on decoys is way different than taking passing shots on ducks or hunting turkeys with a purpose-built shotgun. All of this stuff's different. You can't get all of that experience in, in a few months, but you can get a piece of that in a few months. And that's how I would start. I would go to professionals assuming you don't have buddies that are that are good at what they do. And even if you do, like usually I find this too. So like I have a buddy, he knows guns, and we go to the range and we shoot. Well, what do you do? You stand behind the range and you shoot. Why? Because you can't move, you can't do this, you can't draw from a holster, blah, blah, blah. Or they, okay, now they find a place where they can do those things and they t train tactically. Or they, they do the IPCC type pistol shooting and all. And they get really zoned in on that one thing, but they don't get the knowledge of what's really available. Because you might find that you love one of these other things. You might find ways and outlets for that that you wouldn't have with the other options. So that's the approach I would take. Let's take another one. Hey, this is Josh. I was calling to comment on the uh, gun call-in show that you wanted to have. I'd like to say that uh, I've been reloading ammo for a few years, and I'm in my early 30s. I know a lot of people my generation don't reload anymore, and I kind of got into it uh, by my uncle doing it. And uh, I, got, I was hesitant for a long time because I always looked at it as a cost savings thing, like, you know, if I buy all my equipment, eventually I'll be making bullets for less than I can buy them. And while that's true, uh, there is a significant cost up front, and eventually, you know, I was, found the real match for reloading, which is that you can make superior bullets. So when I shoot my 308 at 400 yards, I can stack them all within a quarter as to where I get Federal or Winchester ammunition. I don't really prefer Remington at all, but, uh, Any of the other major main bullet manufacturers, even the best bullets you get, it definitely has some variable. Um, I like the Hornaday uh, reloading equipment. I like I got a digital powder scale that I use that uh, I can get all my loads out here within a grain. And I think that's helped pretty consistently. I like the MI or IMR powder um, as opposed to some other ones, and I like uh, Sierra bullets. This is my preferred bullet, but uh, you know, Nosler are good too. But uh, 308's my preferred caliber, and you know, I know there's a big debate on it. Basically, anything over a 243, in my opinion, is sufficient enough to kill a deer. But I've hunted with seven millimeters, seven millimeter out eight, uh, 30 out six, 300 wind mag, and 308 to me just seems like in any platform you put it in is a consistent load and it Definitely gets the job done. Uh, you know, I've never had any type of well-placed shot render an animal anything less than dead on the spot. So, just my opinion. But uh hope this uh, is good for anybody that's considering getting into reloading. Uh, you know, quality over quantity, so to speak, uh, at least in the beginning. But uh, anyway, thanks for what you do, Jack. Have a great one, man. Okay, I'm going to call just a little bit of bullshit there, and I'm sure everybody else is. If you're shooting 400 yards and stacking them in a quarter, you need to go into competition because you're going to own the world of competition. So I, 
I, I don't know what you really meant by that, but uh, I think sometimes when we're talking, we tend to let our, uh, our, our mouth go a little faster than our brains, and I, th I think that happened there. And the reason I point that out isn't to mess with the caller. It's to kind of just say, hey, that happens, and you're on a phone, and you're leaving a message, and it, it, he may mean that he shoot a quarter minute of angle, um, which would be around an inch of four yards. And you still need to get into competition shooting, and I'd still call BS on it, but um, maybe you mean 100 yards. Uh, and a quarter, and that is something you definitely can do. There's a lot more people that could do that than you'd think. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about why that's possible with reloading. You can reload ammo for your gun that is better than any other ammo for your gun that could come from anywhere else. Because when you start learning about reloading, you can use a process called neck size only. And that means I fire the brass And instead of full-length uh, sizing the brass so that that piece of brass, when it's a reloaded cartridge, will go back into any rifle, it will go back into my rifle and fit like a glove. It will fire for them. So when you fire, um, uh, let's say, a, a 306 round, inside that chamber, there's tremendous pressure, as you might imagine. And the brass expands as it propels the bullet down the rifle barreling And the barrel oscillates and the bullet flies out and hopefully hits whatever we aimed at. And the brass then returns somewhat. It kind of shrinks back down, but it, it retains a shape that actually fits that chamber now more perfectly than anything off the shelf ever could. There's minor differences chamber to chamber to chamber. And that, that round is now fire formed to that chamber. That's why we full length size. So if I reload a 306 cartridge and I give one to Tom and one to Frank and one to Bob, they can put it in three different guns, plus I can put one in mine and it will fit in all of them. But if I know that brass is going back in my rifle, I can use the die, which is the piece that we use to actually do all these things inside the press with the cartridge, and I can re, I can only resize the, um, the neck. And then there's a little bit of trimming and chamfering that has to be done there. And then when I reload that, I have basically the fit-like-a-glove thing going on. That alone causes more precise bore alignment, and you can't buy ammo like that unless somebody reloads it for you. If you're going to do this, obviously, then that, those, that group of brass goes with that rifle forever until we full-length resize it. Okay, But that's one of the many reasons. Now... The other reason to reload is you hear, well, I like this, I like that, I don't like this, I don't like that. This is my favorite here. He knows that now. When you start reloading, you'll learn that. I like this powder, I don't like that powder. Your opinion is meaningless to me because I reload for the same reason you do. So that I can figure out what, what works well for me, my gun, my climate, my reloading procedures, etc. Now, on the, the choice of reloading equipment... Um, I haven't done a lot of reloading lately, and when I do eventually find some time and get back into it, uh, one of my first pur purchases is going to be one of these digital scales. And they make a digital scale. Lyman makes one, and Horney probably makes one too by now, where there's a, 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 a discharger and a scale that are wirelessly talking to each other. And when you dial in 41.1 grains, for instance, of powder, every time you push a button, it spits that into the scale, and it perfectly hits that within a tenth of a grain. Um, 
Everything else I use is Lee. Lee does not make one of those. I do not like Lee's perfect powder measure. I've had way too many things with powder coming out of the side of it and stuff like that. And while I love everything else Lee makes, I don't like any of their powder measures. I don't mind their dippers for like their hand reloaders and stuff like that. You, you can't get a cavity out of calibration. That's, that's the truth. Um, but if, when I go back to precision rifle loading, I'm going to upgrade to one of those. Hornady makes great equipment. But if you want to get into reloading, you can get a set of Lee dies, one of their powder measures is good enough to get started, and a, and a, and a basic press for like 60 bucks. Um, that's hard to beat, and their dies cost so much less than RCBS, than Hornady, than Lyman, than everybody else. And a lot of that stuff is interchangeable, so you can use Hornady uh, press with Lee die if you want to, but... I, I don't see, I, I again, let me put it this way. I see the value of a Hornady press. I see the value of a Lyman press. I don't think their value warrants the cost difference from a Lee press. I really don't. Now, in the, if you get into handguns and high volume and you're going to go to progressive presses, Hornady and Lyman both make very, very good progressive presses, and I would say better than the Lee. Enough to warrant the price difference? Maybe. But maybe. The, 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 the value of the Lee equipment for the basic rifle reloader that's going to reload one cartridge at a time, unbelievable. And then their, their neck crimp, uh, their factory crimp die is fantastic. And it's something I don't think anybody else makes. There's ways you can do it, but not the way Lee does it. And it costs less. So, The budget-minded reloader, I'd recommend you start with Lee Equipment. You can always upgrade later. But if you want to reload for one cartridge and you want to get into it, again, a basic Lee press, a set of dies, including like the full onset of dies, uh, and a powder measure, you know, 60, 80 bucks, and you're in the game. And that's the big deal, getting started. And then you can get all pickety and persnickety later on. Most of us do, if you can't tell. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Jake and... Jasper County, Mississippi. Uh, my question is in relation to uh, 45 caliber versus 9 millimeter. Uh, being more in, in the way you look at it as a prepper, uh, I realize you can buy great expanding ammo for a 9 millimeter, but it's not very cost effective to store a whole bunch of it, where hardball 45 is pretty effective as a defensive round. I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were. All right, so if you're worried about storing thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds uh, that are rounds for, for killing people, I mean, specifically you want a round that's going to be a good defensive round, unless you're uh, the police department or something, and you probably don't need that many then, even though some numbers would lead us to believe otherwise, Uh, you're probably in that kind of Red Dawn scenario thing that ain't going to happen. It's probably a moot question. I, I know as a survivalist I'm not supposed to talk that way, but I am a modern survivalist that speaks in reality versus fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so when I hear somebody that wants to store a whole bunch of ammo, but I want to make damn sure it's good at killing people, uh, if I ever comes to it and the blue helmets come after me, which isn't what the caller said, but if it's from a prepper standpoint you're worried about how good is it at self-defense, um, let's put it this way. I carry a gun because someday I may need it. 
And I pray to God I never will. And most people who, who, who carry a gun feel that way, and most people have that prayer answered. You'll, you'll meet very few people who aren't in a profession that, that forces them into engagements with, with firearms who have ever had to use a gun legitimately more than one time. And you'll find far more people who carry a gun are prepared, have trained, that when they're old men have never had to fire a single shot in anger. And the, 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 so therefore the concept of massive amount of ammo storage and it all has to be good man-killer ammo. Yeah. And what does the military use? In 9mm N45. Hardball. Why? Because it always functions and it always works. So you could probably store a couple hundred rounds of whatever your personal defense ammo is. And if you ever use it all, something really bad went wrong. And if something that bad goes wrong, trust me, you're not going to be like, oh, I wish I still had more hollow points. So from a standpoint of this question, I don't really see any real reason to go one way or the other at all. If you actually wanted to go one way or the other for a prepper that wanted a lot of ammo, it would be 9mm. It costs less. It takes up less space. It weighs less. It's more generally, broadly, and widely available, and you're more like to likely to find somebody that needs it and doesn't have it, or someone that has it and doesn't need it, than 45. So as a, as a prepper answer, I don't care if it's made out of freaking titanium or silver for killing werewolves, hollow points, hardball, whatever, um, the, the prepper ammo of choice for a large quantity, 5,000 or more rounds, 9mm. Okay? I love the 45. I love the 45. I love the 45. I love the 45. In the words of Bill Cody, I call carry a 45 because they don't make a 46. In the real world, where people are shot, in general, when you actually look at real numbers, not anecdotal evidence, if somebody gets shot in the right place with a 9mm and they don't go down, it's an exception. And same thing for the 45. And if you actually look at studies that have been done, of gunshot victims overall, the one-shot stop and the lethality rates of the 45 and the 9mm are nowhere near as different as we have been led to believe. That said, for personal defense, you're damn right. You want an expanding energy dumping round in either one. Um, but I'm not lining up to get shot by either one of them. As a person that loves the 1911 and loves the 45, all of my ego and all of my bias wants to make a case for the 45. In the end, whatever you like, man. Whatever you like. Okay? I mean, that, that's what it comes down. What platform are you more comfortable shooting? And, you know, they make 1911 platforms that shoot 9 millimeters. It almost seems sacrilegious to me, but there's nothing wrong with it. You know, so what do you get the most out of? 9 millimeters do have less recoil, especially in equivalent weight frames. And if you put a 9 millimeter in my hand, like a... A PF92 Beretta, the military 9mm, and a 1911-45, I'll actually tell you I feel less recoil from the 1911 because I'm so comfortable with that frame. But if you hand me a 9mm 45 frame, a 1911 frame with a 9mm in it, I can tell you, yeah, that 9mm has less recoil. And I could probably shoot that gun, quote, you know, air quotes, better as far as consistency. So a lot, 9 millimeter has a lot going for it. This is one of these things that you're never, 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 never going to get an answer to. Because everybody can make a case based on their bias for either one. It's like 308 or 3006. Uh, who cares? Dead is dead. It does not come in degrees. But from a, from a prepper standpoint, 
storage standpoint, 9mm would be the way to go. Period. And I would rather have an expanding 9mm round as a defensive round than a hardball 45. I absolutely 100% would. And I don't consider that as an advantage either way when it comes to ammo I'm going to store. Because the storage ammo I store is either for major shit hits the fan, and I'm not relying on my handgun then anyway. I'm really not. Um, or to make sure that I always have I'm going to practice, train with, and distribute. And I'm not ever going to do that either way with high-dollar ammunition. It costs too much money. That's why you get into reloading. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Dan from the frozen tundra of Minnesota. I got a gun question for you. How can you determine the value of an extremely rare gun? Background. I was given a 1962 Hammerley 22 bolt-action single-shot rifle. It was made specifically for the 1962 Olympics. They only made 50 of these, and it's numbered. I don't want to sell it, but I do want to insure it for its value. I checked with my insurance agent, local gun shops. I checked on the Internet on gun sites like uh, GunBroker and uh, other Internet sites, and I couldn't find anything for the value on this gun. You got any suggestions? Thank you. Um, this is where you need to search for on the Internet. Gun appraisal service and try to find someone somewhere near you that would actually be able to take a look at it or uh, be able to do so through pictures. Uh, when you have an, anything that rare, what it's worth is not what any catalog says, but what the market will bear. What will somebody actually pay for it? So you, what you really need is a good appraisal from a reputable appraiser, And then that is what you use when assessing the insurance value, and that is what you use if you ever need to use the insurance to prove it really is worth, I said what it was worth. And, and then once the existing appraisal is there, if it's been a long time, you could have a new appraiser assess what the value would be based on uh, the, the value of the weapon being increased. Because with a firearm, it's not just what it is, but what is its condition. When something like 50 were made, well, was this the first one or was it the last one? Was this one since they were made for the Olympics used in the Olympics? Or was it just one of the ones made for the Olympics that never got used? Did somebody win a medal with it? I mean, there's so much with something like that. So you need to find an appraisal service. That is the only way you're going to do this. And what they're going to be specifically looking for, has any one of these been auctioned recently? Because that's that's the way you're going to get a value on something like this. Um, even if you saw one priced, Unless somebody bought it, it's like, oh, I put that out and say, blah, 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 Olympics, Hammerley, blah, so 50 made in all history, yada, 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 $25,000. And you say, aha, my gun's worth $25,000. It might be worth $50,000. It might be worth $5,000. What somebody sells something for it does not matter what somebody pays for it. So uh, firearms, appraisal, service, make some phone calls. Make some phone calls. Call people, explain, this is what I have. Do you guys have any way that you can appraise this? And don't be afraid to pay for an appraisal from the right person. The reason I say to call them is people are much more able to bullshit and lie in an email than on the phone. You get somebody on the phone, if you can tell they really have no idea what they're doing, you're going to be like, yeah, I don't want this guy. You need to find someone that, that specializes in appraising rare firearms. And uh, they're going to ask a lot of If they don't ask a lot of questions, they don't know either. Well, if they don't ask some of the questions I, I just gave you for them to be asking, like, was it used? I don't know. Where'd you get it? Do you have a chain of custody recorded? 
Are you sure it is what you think it is? Can I get pictures of it? What's the bore like? Right? I mean, things like that. I mean, if the bore on a 22 is, is bad, something's bad wrong. But that, that's, there's, there, I don't have any other answer for you than that one. That's the best I can give you. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. MSB member Matt from Ohio answering your call for gun-related questions. Here's my question. Do you have an opinion on the Springfield Scout Squad versus the Ruger SR762? Here's the background. I've decided to purchase a semi-automatic 308 762 NATO rifle as an adjunct to my Remington 700 and 308. I'm down to the Springfield versus the Ruger. From what I can see, the pros on the Springfield are fewer moving parts, uh, battle-proven, robust design. The cons, although it's robust, it is an older design and depending on the configuration, can be heavy with less aftermarket add-ons. The pros on the Ruger, it has a modern design that's ergonomic, user-friendly, and I trained with a similar system in the Army. The cons, it can be more expensive, there are less parts availability, and less units on the used market. So in your opinion, have I covered all the bases, or is there a significant blind spot that I'm missing? I'm leaning towards Springfield for its simple design and the fact that I have a soft spot for weapons with such a storied history like the Springfield. Anyway, Jack, thanks for everything you do and lifting my eyes to all the ass clownery out there. Have a great day. Um, disclaimer, a lot of people will disagree with me, and a lot of people will, will agree with me on this one. I'm going to go with the Springfield all day long. I, I really am here, and I'm going to tell you why. In the end, the Ruger is a kitted-up AR-10. That's what it is. And it is about $2,200 MSRP. And I think you could go to an individual small uh, small business owner uh, who builds custom AR platform rifles and have them build you to your specifications an AR-10 at that price range that would be every bit as good or better than the Ruger. I mean, so what does... What does Ruger bring to the table for that price? They bring a they bring a damn nice AR-10 to the table. So I think you can get a damn nice AR-10 platform for twelve hundred to fourteen hundred dollars, and put a thousand dollars in your pocket, or a thousand dollars into accessorizing it the way that you want to. Um, in looking into it, the biggest complaints people have about the Ruger is the trigger. The trigger sucks. It's shit. It's a terrible trigger. So the first thing you're going to do is pay 22 well, okay, street price, $1,900 for this gun. And the first thing you're going to do is want to yank the trigger out and replace it. You're going to put a couple hundred dollars. You're right back to MSRP. Um, for a gun out of the box, Springfields are beautiful triggers. They really are. Um, it is heavier, but... So if it's here's what I'm saying. If it's between those two, I'm going to go with the Springfield. If you lean toward the Ruger, then I'm going to say, see what other AR-10 options are available for you. You know, look at someone who builds these things for a living, who custom builds them, and see what you can get a custom built AR-10 for. You might be really surprised, really, really surprised that you could be in the same ballpark. Um, and maybe not. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you that, good God, an off-the-shelf AR-10 isn't that far behind the Ruger. It really isn't. So, I, let's see, I'm going to, how can I put this? I'm not going to let Ruger 
be my customizer of that platform. I think they ask too much for what they deliver. I don't dislike the platform. I dislike paying that much for them to be the ones to put the handguards on it and put a shitty trigger in it. That's my thoughts. But I wouldn't fault you for buying either one. It's your money. It's your decision. But the M1 is just an incredible platform. It really is. I don't think... I think if you buy the Ruger someday, you might sell it. You might sell it and get something different. I think if you buy the M1, you'll give it to your kid or your grandkid. That's how I'm making that decision. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, gun question. I'm looking at an M, Pat, M85. It's an AK platform, but it takes a 5.56 round, and they can take uh, AR magazines. I was thinking about a quick, a quick uh, grab-and-go gun for a truck. Moving back to South Carolina, can't wait to get the heck out of Connecticut. Uh, hope you take the question, and thanks for everything you do, bud. I'm one of these listeners out here listening to you every day on the podcast at work. only thing that gets me thinking and um, it gets me through the day, bud. Thanks a lot. Keep it up, man. Later. So to be totally above board honest here, I had to look up what a PAP M85 was. I don't pay a lot of attention to uh, the, the newest things coming into the tactical gun market like I used to. Um, I'm kind of kitted up on guns to the point where I've tried to talk myself out of buying new stuff, not finding excuses to spend more money. Uh, but now, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, why did you do this? I want one. Um, so... Let's talk about the Springfield Stabilizer Brace first so that people that don't know what it is know what it is. There is a pistol uh, pistol brace for the AR platform made by um, SIG that basically looks like a little stock, except the way it's designed is you, you stick your arm through it, and there's a Velcro strap that goes around your forearm so you can hold it and fire it like a brace. Why would you want such a thing? Because it's really a stock. Because in the end, it's really a stock. Um, and what it does is it lets you take a pistol, put a stock on it, and not have it be an SBR, or short-barreled rifle, because the ATF came out with a letter and said, doesn't really matter if you can fire it that way. If it was built as a pistol uh, uh, brace, and it is a pistol brace, uh, it's legal. The ATF has wafted on this, though, a lot. So you got to be careful with this, this SIG brace thing. Okay, They're legal. And right now, the current status is they're legal to put on your weapon. I believe the ATF's latest statement is, when you when you put it on your weapon, it's not illegal. But when you fire it as a rifle, it becomes illegal. Now, how do they enforce this? I don't know. I do worry about running into Johnny Law. You have this in your trunk. He looks at it. He knows enough to be dangerous. And he says, that's a short bile rifle, son. Where in the hizzik is your class 3 stamp for it? Um, I don't have one. That's a pistol brace. That don't look like no pistol brace to me. You and me are going to go to jail together, boy. I would make sure if you have that thing on your property, on your premises, that it always with it is a copy of the ATF letter and their statement about what it currently is. And if you ever get into this position where they say it's illegal, take it the hell off. There's other ways to do that. We'll talk about it in a minute. Okay, so I want one. And I'll tell you a big part of why is compared to putting it on most of the AR uh, AR platforms that's made for it costs a lot less. I see them for buy it now prices with the pistol brace on them for under 800 bucks on Gunbroker, and that tells me you can get one for less. 
It is an AK receiver that takes AR magazines. It shoots 5.56. That's outstanding. Uh, all the reviews I read about it after getting this question say it functions like you'd expect an AK to, which means it functions well. With that legendary uh, a, uh, AK reliability, I even read one where they stuffed it with mud. I don't know why people want to do that to their guns other than to prove that it will function. And AKs notoriously function even with that, and in this case it did as well. So high-functioning costs less than an AR pistol. Uh, it can be made to accept the SIG brace, and I'd just tell you I'd buy one that was already configured to do so instead of trying to figure out how to do it myself. Now, if they ever make that thing illegal... And if you ever want to fire any, you know, uh, rifle caliber semi-auto pistol and get some of the stability you do if you put a stock on it like a rifle, but what you want to do is look to what Roni did, R-O-N-I, Roni did with their, their pistol carbine conversion kits to create something that you could use without a Class 3 license. So Roni, I believe, is an Israeli company. And they built this really cool conversion kit that I've always wanted. And you take something like a Glock and you put it inside there and it becomes a carbine. And it actually becomes an SVR, short-barreled rifle. So you can buy the conversion kit without Class 3. But then you have to get the Class 3 for it before you put the gun in it. Because this is what the ATF says, by putting the gun, the, the pistol into it and closing it, You've manufactured a Class 3 firearm. The accessory isn't a Class 3 firearm. The Glock isn't. When you put it in there, it becomes that. So you need a Class 3 for it. And then that particular handgun has to be married to that thing forever. So Ronnie said there's a lot of people who would like to own this that don't want to go through Class 3. So they built something that looks just like the converter. But instead of putting a stock on it, they put a, a really nice um, kind of wide... Uh, short, highly adjustable sling on it. And the way this works is you put it kind of cross, so it's over around your neck and under your shoulder, uh, so it's under the, under the shoulder of your strong side where you'd shoot from a right-handed shooter to come across the left side of the neck and underneath the right side of the arm. And you adjust that sling so that that weapon hangs you know, mid-chest, so it's very, very tight. And you adjust it so that when you reach down and grab the 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 uh, the the, 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 the It, whether you've got a uh, what about a forward assist with it, a forward uh, a forward grip, or just you have like there's a notch that's in some of them or what have you, or um, in in the case of this gun that the guy's asking about, you'd maybe use the magazine well, and and the pistol grip, and you push forward instead of pulling back like a stock, you push against your body. You get the stability as though there was a stock there. Is it as good? No, but for you know this type of shooting, it's damn. Damn stable. And there's no gray area. It's just a sling. There is no stock. John Law can't be confused. So I'm not saying not to get a SIG brace because I now want one of these with the SIG brace on it. I'm saying that for some of you out there that already have pistol uh, pistols that, that are these semi-auto like AR, AK type things that would like to put a stock on it, want to do it cheap, Don't want to run afoul of the ATF or the law enforcement. I'll put a link today for the Roni Recon Conversion Kit for a Glock. And the best thing about that thing is it makes a, a Glock worth shooting.
Sorry, Glock guys. I don't like locks. But I know if you like them, they're great. It's all about, like, supposedly wrist angle or whatever. But I don't like shooting locks, but I like shooting them in these things. But just take a look at the way this is kitted up, and then you don't necessarily have to get the sling that Roni uses. You can find any sling that does the same thing. Uh, but those of you that own Glocks and are like, I like one of these Roni kits. I don't want to do class three. I don't want to get in trouble. Take a look at this thing as well. It's awesome. I learned about it from Devin Standard, and I would have linked to it on his website, but he only has the other one now. So maybe these don't sell well, but I love the idea of the gun itself. I just wanted to throw that extra stuff in for you. So I'm all about buying that because I want to buy one now. Thanks for doing that to me. Let's take another one. But again, uh, I'll put a link where you can see uh, a little bit of info about the gun itself that the guy asked about and uh, the Roni conversion kit for the Glock where you can get an idea of what I'm talking about with the sling. Uh, g'day, Jack. Uh, my name is Zach from Queensland, Australia. I'm actually repeating my phone call because the last one wasn't that good. Um, my question is in regards to the uh, a lever-action shotgun uh, in Australia. Uh, quite recently, we've had a, uh, uh, an, a an issue regarding the Adler A110, which is a lever-action uh, shotgun uh, that came in a seven-round uh, seven uh, tubular magazine. Now, obviously, we have... Tough, tough laws in Australia, and I'm not going to question that um, at this phone call. But that, needless to say, that's probably the the most, uh, the largest capacity magazine uh, shotgun that we can hold in Australia for the general population. Shot, pump action shotguns, semi-automatic shotguns uh, are restricted. Certain people can have them for injuries or or for uh, pest control. That's not me. So this is a uh, a, a B-class firearm, it's technically almost the same as a, or actually an A-class firearm. Regardless of that, the long and short of it is, what is your thoughts on a lever-action shotgun? The Adler A110 is a Turkish firearm um, with a seven-round magazine uh, or a five-round magazine. At the moment, the Prime Minister stepped in, or the Prime Minister's Council stepped in, and have a prohibited importation of the seven-round for the time being. The five-round is now allowed to uh, to come in. They're saying it's new technology, it's, uh, it is high capacity, danger, you know, all that rubbish jargon that they carry on with. Long and short of it, I just want to get your thoughts on a, on a lever action um, shotgun. And uh, the inherent problems are pretty obvious, but pretty keen to hear your thoughts, Jack. I think you're a great bloke, love your work, I've been listening for five years or more, and um, can't wait to keep listening. Ciao, mate, bye. Well, I'm going to say this. Given the restrictive laws in your country, if you want one, get the five-round one while you can. It is conceivable that they may end up deciding they don't want to go all the way tooth and nail to war for more gun restriction and try to take them back once they're bought and eventually say, if they came in before we said no more, you can keep it, but if they come in after, you can't get one. So... That type of thing does happen with gun laws when politicians decide I don't want to I don't want a full on battle here so let's just let's just plug the hole that we left so if you want one go ahead and get it um, because the next answer to your question is what do I think of lever action shotguns well first of all I think they're cool as shit I really do um, would I choose one for hunting and defense or defense over a pump action or a semi auto no no. Um, might I hunt with one because I think it's cool? Yes. If you tell me I can have a, a single shot or a double barrel break action shotgun or a lever action shotgun for hunting or self-defense, 
It depends. But if I'm going to be hunting where multiple follow-up shots beyond two are, are desired, or I'm going to use it for defense, tactical, etc., then I will take the lever action as an option all day long. Especially if you limit me to those are the only three things I can have, a single barrel, uh, a, a double, whether it's over and under or side-by-side -side configuration, uh, or a lever action. I'm probably going to own one of each. Uh, because that's all you've left me with. So now I have maximum flexibility within the law. Would I recommend this as a primary shotgun in the United States of America? No. Would I recommend it in Australia? You bet your ass. And if I wanted one, I would go ahead and get it because I think that the way you're, I mean, your country's not headed toward more firearms freedom. It's just not. And it's very likely that since they said, well, we'll let the five round in, but not the seven. I mean, come on. You really got to think about how moronic this is. Um, that eventually they may put a stop to it. And they may not say that they're illegal. They may just ban their importation. That's a lot easier to get done than to take away property that people already have. I know they did that in your country, uh, mainly because your, your people were willing to have it done to them. Uh, you know, rebellions only work if enough people rebel at the same time. Otherwise, the re rebels get killed. And then smart rebels say, okay, I'm going to comply because I don't want to be dead because that doesn't actually get anything done. Um, so that's what happened in Australia. But now would they say, okay, you can buy this and a couple thousand of them come into the country or so. Uh, people that are complying with all the laws have done it. Uh, we don't want any more of them. They stop it. Is it, is it, is it worth the political battle? To go take away yours. Probably not. Because they're not disarming the whole country now. Now they're going out to a few people that bought under the law. It is easier. It's easier logistically. It's harder politically. So, so lovely lever action shotguns. Probably my last choice in repeating shotguns, but still a choice. Fits what you have available to you. Get it now before they take away your ability to get one. And if they ban the importation... But don't ban the transfer. It might be worth a hell of a lot of money, so maybe buy two if you've got the budget for it. I'm just saying, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I occasionally run across 80% complete lower receivers on some gun sites. My question for you is, is there any advantage to building something like that out other than just the experience for having said that you did it? I'd um, love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks and love the show. Bye-bye. That's a big it depends. That's a really big it depends. Depends on your motivation, your capabilities, etc. Um, one of the most often cited things is you avoid the DROS fee, which is a dealer's record of sale fee. Uh, so you can avoid that, but that's not a lot of money. If you're in California, it can be quite a bit more money. Um, because there's additional fees, and I think some other states have them. So unless you're one of those states, the money's not that big. Um, the next thing is there's some machine work that has to be done. It's not like you get this 80% receiver and just buy a bunch of parts and plug them into it, and then it works. So you're either going to have to do your machining work yourself, in which case you can def definitely save some money building one, or you're going to have to pay like a CNC shop. And when I look on forums and all, you're looking at like, 40 to 100 bucks, depending on certain things about getting that done. So then the total cost of the weapon starts to come more in line with just buying it anyway. What you can do, though, is when you buy an 80%, it's not any kind of record of sale of a firearm. Okay? Yeah? 
So if you complete it, there's still no record of a firearm. And unless you transfer it, it doesn't even, as far as I know, and if I'm wrong, please somebody correct me, have to actually have a serial number. So you can build an AR platform gun with an 80% receiver that has no paper trail whatsoever. If that's important to you, then that's an advantage. If you don't give a damn, then it's not an advantage. The other thing, you can build an AR pistol with that 80% receiver with no paper trail. So you can have a modern, semi-auto, air quotes, handgun with no paper trail unless you choose to transfer it. Further, in many states, there are no requirements for transfers of firearms between private sellers, so there's that. Now, there's what's called the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. We're starting to get into some things that circumvent the spirit of the law. And you, whenever you do that, you have to start really examining whether or not you're violating the letter of the law. So you need legal advice before you do any of these things. But that's kind of the direction of thinking that goes on there. And you want to talk to a lawyer uh, familiar with firearms law before you do anything based on the information I just gave you to clear my ass, basically. But, I mean, that's what the SIG, that's what the SIG brace is. It's the spirit versus the letter of the law. The letter of the law clearly defines what a stock is. The SIG brace clearly is not a rifle stock. Just because it can function like one doesn't mean that's what it is. Um, you know, so look, going back to our other one with the spirit versus letter of the law, how does that apply to the uh, the, the PAP M85 that we just talked about? See, the, the, the AR pistol has a buffer tube that sticks out of it. It's already there. So when you slide the brace onto that, you haven't really modified the weapon to make that happen. You just slide a brace on. So there probably has to be some modification to the PAP. Does that spirit letter thing start to overlap? See, it's a lot of gray areas. So you got to be careful with this stuff, guys. That's all I'm trying to say. Um, but, but when it comes down to it, those 80% receivers, those are only real advantage. Maybe a financial savings, specifically if you do your own machine work. What you said, which is the pride and the knowledge for doing it yourself and building it the way you want it, etc. And then you're building an AR platform gun with no paper trail. So that's it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name's Todd. I'm from Western Massachusetts. Uh, I've got a quick question for you about the antique Stephen Savage model 940B. 12-gauge shotgun. Um, first of all, I'd like to throw out there to let you know that it is a sentimental gun. I got it for my father for my 15th birthday, as is tradition in my family. Um, so I realize that the questions that I'm asking may be not a particularly um, useful weapon in the field, as it is only a single-shot break action, but it has a lot of sentimental value to me, and I'd like to increase its versatility. Um, I know that Stephen Savage made a number of 12-gauge shotguns in this style and setup for a number of years, and they made them in everything from 22 to 12-gauge, 10, 410, uh, all the way to 3030. Um, my question for you is, is it safe to use, say, a 3030 barrel off of one of these Stephen Savages um, on this particular 940B? Um, I've heard varying opinions everywhere from absolutely throw it on and go to no, it's not hardened, it doesn't have a hardened firing pin, and it will blow up in your face. Um, I just like a straight-up answer from somebody that knows, such as yourself, 
uh, more about firearms, whether this is a good idea to try or not. Um, so there you go. If you could answer that, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Um, this is one of those things where you, you want to ask somebody that knows, but you're not asking the right person because I don't know. Uh, my gut is it's not going to happen. I don't even know that it's going to happen at all because the single-shot Savage that I can think of that's a thirty thirty and it's not a combo gun because Savage Stevens made an awful lot of combo guns. So he had like a four ten over twenty two and things like that. Uh, was a two nineteen, and I don't think that barrel will will even begin to go on your gun. I don't think that the breech. And the barrel will mate up. I don't. I don't think that happens. I don't think that works. If it does, then what you have to do is you have to contact Savage and see if you can find somebody in their customer service department that will tell you if there was a difference, mainly in the receiver material between the purpose-built shotguns and the rifles and/or combo guns. It's probably not going to have very much anything to do with the firing pin. Um, But unless they use the exact same receiver, the answer is don't do it. And not even the exact same receiver from a standpoint of dimensions, but the same receiver in the steel hardness and all of that, and the tolerances and what it was tested and rated for, then you don't do it. So unless you get an answer from Savage that, you know, which would basically be I have the 30-30, and I have, uh, you know, I have a 30-30, and the, the gun's been damaged, If I bought one and I wanted to put the barrel on, you know, if I wanted a receiver, are they the same? If I was buying the gun itself, the receiver, are they identical? And if they're identical, then it could be done with, you got headspace issues, a gunsmith needs to look at it, all of that, because will they mate perfectly? For instance, the H&R NEF single-shot rifles, the tolerances are not tight enough that you can just take one barrel from another and put it on. Now, people say, well, I've done it. Well, you got lucky. Because that's why H&R and EF, is, until they've discontinued the barrel program, always wanted to fit the barrel to the receiver. Where like the Thompson Center Contender, uh, which is a similar platform, their tolerances are so exact, you can just buy a barrel and slap it on. And that's why they cost more. Now, personally, I think this is a bad idea. And uh, I'll give you a perfect example of why. A pristine, beautiful 940, like you have, with Two barrels, because you can exchange the shotgun barrels. That that I have determined for you. With two shotgun barrels, it's worth about $220. Your gun has more sentimental value than it will ever have monetary value. Leave it be what it is. A Savage 219B in anything from 22 Hornet up to 3030, they made some in 3040 Craig. Um, they're going to sell for three to $400 if you can find one. They're a little bit hard to find, but if you can find one, that's what we're going to sell for. The odds you're going to find a, a barrel without the lower receiver are very, very low. Who does that? Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think it makes sense logistically or financially. If you really are in love with the platform and you want to have that capability, then go buy a 219B. And then when you hand down that shotgun, hand that rifle down with it, tell the story, and, and transfer that to your next generation. Um, I just don't think it's a good idea, unless Savage says it's okay. So the only, so the, the people who know are the people that made the gun. And since Stevens no longer exists and Savage is the remnant, unless 
an official rep from Savage tells you it's okay to do, don't do it. And, and that's what I know. And I don't think it makes sense just to try to make that happen. You can go out and buy a nice used lever action 30-30 and put that with your shotgun for 300 bucks. That's just my opinion. Let's take another one. Jack, this is JR from Oklahoma by way of New Mexico. Could you explain the difference between Smith & Wesson revolvers frame types? J-frames, K-frames, N-frames. Also, what is a pre-lock revolver and why does it matter? Thanks for all that you do. Actually, the easiest and most straightforward, simple, quick answers of today. Um, to my knowledge, there are three different frame sizes in the Smith & Wesson Revolver Series, J, K, L, and N. Uh, there's some missing letters in sequence there. Don't ask me what happened to them. I don't know. Uh, but it is about the size of the frame, the frame's thickness, and the cylinder diameter. And it's just like you would think. The smaller frame and cylinder diameter are the J size. Next up is the K, the L, and the N. So the N series is the largest frame and largest cylinder diameter. This is the outside cylinder diameter. And uh, J is the smallest. That's it. That's all there is to it. Now, lock and uh, pre-lock. So as gun locks came in vogue and eventually became mandatory, they'd be included, etc., Smith & Wesson decided instead of ex including some weird exterior lock, we will make an integral lock. And uh, so you, you, if you have a Smith & Wesson revolver, they only make what I would call a right-handed revolver. I think the only people I know that make a left-handed revolver is a Colt revolver made for the lefty. So what I mean by that is, you know, what, what does that mean, you know, left versus right-handed? When you hold a revolver in your right hand, There's a, a cylinder release lever uh, in your double-action revolvers that's right down by your left thumb, or your right thumb, I'm sorry, your right thumb. So when you push that, um, that release, the, the cylinder swings out to your, your left side, and then you can use either your left hand, usually most people take their left hand, bang out the rounds, and then put the, the, the gun into their left hand and hold it like a cup, reload, swing it back in, and go back to firing or use a speed loader if you're going to do that. And just above that cylinder release lever on the lock, what they call a lock model, is a little hole. And it says lock. There's a little key that comes with your gun. And you stick it in there and you turn it, and it locks the gun so it won't fire. And you need that key to unlock it. Okay, So there's been some people that claim that the Smith & Wessons with the locks... Sometimes during recoil, the lock will engage and the gun won't function. I've never seen that happen. I'm not saying it doesn't, but my gut is that that means the person that unlocked it didn't fully unlock it. But it's one more thing to worry about. It's one more thing to worry about. Where the pre-lock just doesn't have that. There is no lock feature. If you want a handgun lock for, for a pre-lock, you either get a cable lock and put it through the cylinder, or you get a, a trigger lock or what have you. That's it. Now... The biggest reason people want the pre-lock models is, you know, and I don't remember the date off the top of my head. And I didn't, if you want to, you can look it up uh, on Google. Just go pre-lock uh, Smith & Wesson date, and they'll tell you whatever the date of conversion was. But it's like a pre-64 Winchester. There was a change in the bolt style. And if you just see that, then you know it's an older gun. And we have this belief, and somewhat valid and somewhat invalid, depending on what we're talking about, that the older models had higher quality control and they're more desirable. So a lot of times when somebody says, I have a, a Smith & Wesson K-frame pre-lock, what they're really saying is it's an older gun. 
It's before the days of the stupid government-required lock. If you want to lock it, you're on lock. That's it. Let's go ahead and take another one. Great question, though. I bet there's a lot of people that when they hear Smith & Wesson K-Frame, they have no idea what that means. It's just about the size of the frame. has a lot of uh, importance when you're considering it as a carry gun. Your smaller frames will carry a little bit nicer for you. As a hunter, uh, target shooter, your larger frames have a little more weight and a little bit more stability, a little less perceived re recoil. Hi, Jack. This is Bob from Kentucky with a question about 22 Hornet as a reloadable replacement for 22 long rifle when the rim fires are scarce. Um, I'm just looking for uh, something to shoot and maybe hit a varmint. I don't hunt anymore. I do reload 38 Special and 3030. Um, I have a... 357 and 38 special lever gun. Um, also, what would you say about a 223? Would that be better than a 22 Hornet for this application? I'm talking bolt action, not AR. I already have my AK. Thanks, Jack. I like what you do. I'm a longtime listener and a first-time caller. I've been listening since the Jetta days. Have a good day. Bye. Well, let me just start out with the 22 Hornet. This is a great old round that kind of disappeared as things like the 218B, the 219 Zipper came along and outperformed it. And then when the 222 came out, uh, that really kind of killed it. And then the 223 was standardized on by the military. That kind of killed all of those things. Um, and the 223 kind of took over that, that high-velocity 22 caliber niche. And... Well, there's things like the 220 Swift and 22-250. They'll push 4,000 feet per second. Uh, most of us realize that's more than we need. It doesn't buy as much as you think it would other than a shorter barrel life. And the 223 is the king of the 22 bore uh, stuff for everything from tactical to sporting, varmint shooting, etc. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the 22 Hornet. But the 22 Hornet, in its day, was designed to be Uh, 219 Donaldson Wasp, that was another one they came out with, right? So there's a lot of stuff from back then. But the 22 Hornet was designed to be like a high-velocity 22 round. It's hard for us to see it that way today. But it is a huge leap in performance over the 22 long rifle. The 22 Hornet is as much better than a 22 Magnum as the Magnum is than the long rifle. It's, it's that big of a jump just because of things like the 22-250 and the 222 and the 223. People don't see that anymore. It is a 200-yard solid varmint round. So it's got that going for it. It is cheap to reload. It is very cheap to reload. You can throw 35 to 40-grain slugs in there, H110 powder, max loads, and you're reloading cheap. Brass is a little expensive the first time around. you got to buy all the reloading equipment. But once you got that, it's very inexpensive to reload. It doesn't, it doesn't load down very well. And H110 is a hot powder, and you really only want to load... Uh, the Hornet with H110 at maximum, right? It's one of those things, there's one load for it, you, you just do that. Um, there's some other powders, but it's hard for me to go away from H110 in the Hornet because it's just so perfect. Even with the maximum load of H110 and cooking out as fast as it can, and um, you're looking at like 23 to 2,400 feet per second in the 40 to 50 grain slug range. Um, that's pretty impressive for a little round uh, it's still quiet it still has no recoil it's still going to be less offensive than the 223 will be uh, to neighbors who maybe like loud reports uh, of gunshots kind of make them a little nervous or whatever is it as quiet as a 22 
You know what? Up close, no, it's not. It's a little louder. You can perceive the difference. But if you're 100 yards away, it'd be very difficult to tell the two apart in the report that they have. That said, it's more gun. It does go further. It has more ability. It, it, it is more gun. Okay, and it's not usually shooting a plain lead slug that kind of, you know, mushrooms and flattens out on impact, but you can shoot some pretty frangible rounds in it to mitigate that. So all I'm saying is when it comes to actually like kind of the, the, the self-limiting components of the 22 long rifle, it exceeds those. It's not bad. It's, it's nice to have a gun that'll flatten a groundhog at 200 yards dead flat. Um, when you go past 200 yards, the 223 takes over as being a far better round. So, It is what it is. Can you reload 22 Hornet for the cost of shooting a 22 long rifle? Uh, ten years ago, you couldn't. Today, you can. Yeah. Great idea. So, there's the one caveat. If you're going to reload the 22 Hornet a lot, you're going to want to invest in having a gunsmith or a DIY project take your 22 Hornet and convert it to 22K Hornet, buy a whole bunch of brass and fire form it to K Hornet, so you can get 100 feet per second more. No, that's not why. That's not why. You will. Uh, the K Hornet has about a 100 foot per second advantage when loaded to maximum over the Hornet. But this is an old round. It is a thin walled case. It has a short case life. Many times, two or three times, and you're, you're culling some of your cases during your inspection because of, uh, of issues with the, the brass flow rate, etc. The K Hornet is a rimmed round, so it head spaces on the rim. When you, you, you increase the shoulder angle and fire form your brass, you get a situation where you, you get some level of, I don't want to call it head spacing, but you get support from the, the chamber walls. And what this does is extends your case life. The K Hornet cases will last a lot longer than the stock Hornet cases. That that round should have been been built with the steeper shoulder angles in the first place. Like, it was wildcatted almost before anybody knew what it was. Like, people that got their hands on it started shooting it when, hey, this thing, like, you know, it blows cases out pretty fast. I wonder what if. So most of the time when you do something like make a, an improved version of a round, like the, the 3006 Ackley Improved, where it's the same thing, increasing the, the angle of the, uh, of the shoulder, you're doing it to eke out more performance. That's a byproduct with the Hornet. So I would budget into your, your Hornet purchase, uh, reaming the K Hornet if your goal is reloading. And if you wanted to do that super cheap, you could rent a reamer, and if you buy an H&R NEF single-shot 22 Hornet, That's a very common project with the NEFs. You can sell, you can do that by yourself because you don't have to change the headspace or anything like that. I'm not sure that I would do it on my own with a bolt gun. I'm, I'm not sure it should be a problem. Again, it's a rimmed round. It shouldn't be a problem, but I don't know that. I don't know that. So I would check with a gunsmith, like what's involved with changing a bolt action Hornet into a K Hornet? Does it, you know, does it need anything more than just reaming? And you might just have your gunsmith do that for you anyway, just because you know it'll be done right. Um, but I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying that if you do that as a reloader, you're going to be happier with your purchase. Between the two, if I'm looking for something to reload that's close to the 22 long rifle, I'm going to go with the Hornet. If I want something with the most flexibility, I'll go with the 223. But 22 Hornets are cool, and everybody has the 223. And K Hornets 
are even cooler, especially if you know why you've done it. So I think we have one more, and we will wrap up for today. Hey, Jack. This is Nick from Memphis. Uh, my question is about higher-end 1911s. Um, I've got some Kimbers and some Colts and whatnot, and those are my typical carry. But I was thinking about moving into the world of a Wilson or a Nighthawk, um, and I didn't know if they were actually worth the money if, or if it was just uh, marketing and name. So I was wondering if you could talk about this higher in 1911s and let me know what uh, what your thoughts about them are. Thank you. Um, let me start out with, again, a lot of people will disagree with me, but If you have the budget for one of these things and you want one and you've shot one and you've handled one and you've felt one and you feel that it gives you something more and you're not going to put your kids in the poorhouse so you want to buy one, go ahead. Do, do I think they're worth the premium over a well-made Kimber custom or something like that? No. No, 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 no. Um, the 1911 uh, gun is, is over 100 years old. Like I mentioned earlier, you can get them in 9mm, 357, you know, there's a lot of different calibers that have been modified to shoot in them, but that was made for the 45. That's that's what it is. It, it, manufacturers have been building this thing for so long, it, it, it reached its kind of state of perfection a long time ago. All we're doing now is like when we take motors today and we eke out five more horsepower and uh, 10,000 more miles of life. And how many times we can do that before we kind of hit a point of, like, the cost of doing it is no longer worth the effort of doing it. I feel a lot of guns are like that. I feel ARs have gotten that way. The AR has been with us not for 100 years, but for, jeez, 60 years, 60 years or something like that. I mean, some version thereof. You know, we can keep accessorizing. We can keep putting new coatings on. We can keep putting fancier grips on. Um. I can't justify the cost. As, as everybody listens to this show knows, and I've mentioned several times today, I love, love, love the 1911 platform. I, I don't think anything that anybody's ever made since is a better handgun frame for a shooter. Now, for carry, there's a lot of things that carry better. But for shooting, I don't think anything shoots better. There's a lot of things that, you know, this is the real 1911s, a single-stack proposition that... For, let's say, a tactical use that are better because they have higher capacity. But from a standpoint of a thing of beauty in the hand to shoot, I can't find anything that I've ever held. I've had plenty of things, oh, that's so close. That's so close, but not better. But then, okay, I'm going to take that and I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to add $1,000 in premium to it because... This safety is a little bit smoother. This ampy safety is a little smoother than this $700,000, dollars gun. Um, this finish is a little bit better. I mean, I've never had an unreliable 1911 you know, that jams a lot or anything. The only unreliability I've ever had in a 1911 platform, I bought one of the first Taurus PT911s ever made because it was basically a $1,200 gun for $600 when it came out. And usually the first run, things go wrong, and there was a problem with the ambidextrous safety where it would always work on the right side, but on the left side, the safety would actually unpin. And once I fixed that, no problem. I had a, a, a lower end, like a Rock Island Arms uh, RIA, that's like $300 military-grade uh, 45, 1911 frame, that had some jam issues. But once it was kind of tuned up, never again. So 
I, I mean, I try to be honest with the fact that, again, I am the guy that I have a gun. I have lots of guns. I train to use them. I know how to use them. If I have to, I'm willing to use them. I pray to God every day that I will die having never fired a shot in anger. But if I ever, 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 ever need it, a malfunction that doesn't have to be there could cost me or someone else their life or serious physical harm. Okay? Uh, even if someone that I could have defended or myself is injured but doesn't die, a gunshot is a serious thing. And many people that have been shot who didn't die have had life-altering injuries. So if I thought there was a significant increase in the reliability of such a gun over something like a Kimber Custom, then I'd say it's probably worth it if you have the money. But I don't think it's there. I don't think you'll shoot better. I think if... If you are a competitive shooter that shoots for money and it actually puts more dollars in your pocket, it's worth the investment. I think otherwise, it's not just marketing. The, the improvements are real, but they're such that they probably don't matter to you. I think if you have to ask if it's worth it, it's probably not. If it's worth it to you, then you're going you're gonna to make the investment. That, that's how I feel about that. That's that's the best I can do for you on that. As usual, I'm going to close with a song other than our theme song. I'm going to the point now where we're pretty much playing the intro of the Revolution Is You only at the beginning of the show. Um, I've played this song before. I've been trying to play different songs for you every day, but I can't think of a better song to play at the end of a show about guns than this one. Um, I'm actually thinking of something in the theme of this show that some of you learned about in West Virginia and some of you just learned about uh, that I'll be rolling out by the end of the year. There'll be something that kind of just is a cool thing for people to do. Uh, not so much a business or anything like that. Just a cool thing for people to do uh, that relates to this. Because I believe in preserving our rights to own firearms. You heard from somebody from Australia today. And if you don't think it can happen here, you're just not paying attention. Uh, the goal of the gun control lobby is to take away all firearms rights. And they're, in many ways, smarter than the people on the other side of the debate. They will take whatever they can get whenever they can get it. If they can move one millimeter forward with their agenda, they'll take it when they can get it. And they will never stop trying. And the only way that I think that we can stop that advance is to make more Americans not only respect the right to own a gun, but value that right. Because that's how people take away rights. It's not so much that people don't believe in the right anymore. They stop valuing the right. The way you make people value the right of the Second Amendment is, one, make them own firearms. I don't mean make them like you must, but give them incentive. Teach them. Train them. Get them to become gun owners. Two, make them value what that weapon does for them. Teach them about how it makes them safer, how it can protect them and their family, how it develops a skill, how it develops confidence. Show them how it has value to their descendants, to their, their, their children. A child taught to shoot at a young age is going to be a responsible adult. If he's taught to shoot responsibility, uh, res shoot responsibly, it is going to transcend everything in his life. I've seen it. I don't mean a guy that takes his kid out and goes, here, son, shoot this gun, and laughs at him when the recoil beats the hell out of him. I mean a child who is legitimately taught how to properly maintain, shoot, and use a weapon safely. That child will have a sense of responsibility in him or her, that cannot be done with, I don't believe, anything else. And then make them understand that the weapon that they hold is their property. That when somebody wants to take it away from them, 
They're not just taking away a right, but property. They're denying you your rights and your property. And if you're not an owner yet, your future right to property. But if you're not an owner, you don't make sense. There's so many people that say, I think you should be able to have a gun, but I don't want one. They don't really know why they feel that way. They feel like they've been shamed in not having a gun, or they're afraid of a gun, or they don't think anybody will help them. So we take people out and we shoot with them. But the last thing is to create a connection. To understand that guns, when you buy the right gun for the right reason, is a lifelong purchase. And that a gun has a longer lifespan than a human being. They are some of the finest made tools ever built. Today's guns and guns built for the last 150 years have lifespans, if maintained and taken care of, of a millennium or more. That old 30-30 from the 1950s, there's no reason... As long as the gun grabbers don't get their way, there's no reason that, can't, that gun can't be someday in the hands of a grandchild with so many greats in front of it, I can't even say what, how many of them there are with what's left of my voice from this week and last week. But that's what it can become. And if you really want people to say, you know what, no. No. You will not come any further. This is it. We've given every inch, and you will not come more. Turn guns into heirlooms. And this song is about that. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, what are you going to think of? It sits above the mantle on a couple rusty nails. Ain't worth a lot of money And it damn sure ain't for sale The good Lord only knows All the stories it could tell My granddaddy's gone oh, He bought it new out of the Sears Roebuck catalog And it shot a many shells Over the back of an old bird dog Backed the burglar down when Grandma took the safety off Granddaddy's gun. Just an old double barrel twelve. Stock is cracked and kicks like hell. Wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one. I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder. It comes like a woman, son. It's all how you hold her. Taught me a whole lot more than how to hunt One of these days I'll pass it on to my grandson My granddaddy's gone well, He handed it to me on the day I turned 13 With a half-shot box of shells to keep it clean I keep a picture in the case of that sweet old man me granddaddy's gone it's just an old double barrel 12 stock is cracked and it kicks like hell wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder like a woman, son, it's all how you hold her Taught me a whole lot more than how to hunt
that sits above the mantel on a couple rusty nails. It ain't worth a lot of money, and it damn sure ain't for sale.